The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Alex Niven. We spoke about the erosion of support for the Labour Party in the north of England, the causes of that decline and how the Labour Party and the broader left might seek to reverse it. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, which has a great many left-wing titles that might be of interest to listeners. If you're a student and feeling underwhelmed by your assigned reading, you're in luck because for the month of September, Verso have 50% off all of their student reading, including Benedict Anderson, Theodore Adorno, Ellen Makesons Wood, Henry Lefebvre, Angela Y. Davis, and Mario Tronti's classic text of Italian workerism, Workers and Capital. Visit versobooks.com for more information. As always, you can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, SoundCloud, Blueberry and Spotify. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. And if you've been enjoying this show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. If you would like to, you can also support the show by donating through Patreon. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes, including today's interview. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Alex Niven is a writer, editor and lecturer in English at Newcastle University. His books include Folk Opposition, Definitely Maybe, 33 and a Third, and the forthcoming New Model Island, which will be published by Repeater Books. Our conversation was prompted by his recent article in Tribune magazine, Has Labour Lost the North? And you can find a link to that article in the description of today's show. You begin the article in Tribune by discussing the the 2018 South Shields lecture held in Tyneside at which the speakers were the former Labour frontbencher David Miliband, now Chief Executive of the International Rescue Committee, and also former Conservative Prime Minister John Major. Could you explain what you felt this event showed us about the way that Britain's political class tends to relate to the north of England? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, the, the kind of first and most obvious thing to point out is that, you know, John Major has been kind of almost weirdly uh, rehabilitated, even even in kind of, especially in centrist, but also almost in, in some kind of left of, left of centre quarters, uh, you know, there's this sense that, you know, John Major, you know, he wasn't as bad as Thatcher and perhaps wasn't as bad as Blair, uh, you know, and he's become this kind of grand elder statesman figure. But obviously, you know, the, the, the kind of, uh, you know, major Majorism was, you know, in a sense, as bad, if not worse, in lots of ways as Thatcherism, and certainly in terms of places like South Shields, um, you know, uh, conservative government of the 90s really sort of, you know, was was even more savage in kind of completely getting rid of mining industry, the shipbuilding industry, and so on and so forth. So just, the, you know, the notion that he had been kind of rehabilitated such that he could kind of come back to South Shields uh, as a kind of you know, respectable 
kind of elder statesman figure was seemed quite shocking to me. But more to the point, uh, you know, the fact that David Miliband was his interlocutor really seemed to kind of confirm that, you know, he was really, uh, you know, on kind of similar ground to Major Miliband, obviously MP for South Shields. Just, I th- you know, I think this, this is a kind of window into the real kind of structural analysis in the article, which is this kind of long-running Labour kind of disregard for the Northeast and perhaps the North in general, starting with Kinnock, but obviously climaxing with New Labour. Obviously, you know, David Miliband, a kind of Blairite, an arch Blairite, who, you know, who didn't really have anything to do with uh, the Northeast, didn't really kind of, wasn't a very good local MP. And, you know, you have him within a few years of, uh, you know, uh, stepping down from his constituency role, coming back to Charles Shields with John Major, the person who, you know, had kind of, you know, finally destroyed the the, the kind of industrial, uh, you know, culture and the industrial uh, industries of, of South Shields, uh, which seems a kind of shocking thing to me, but also, you know, symbolic of this kind of long running labor disregard for places like the Northeast. It's an interesting point on the nature of the major government and, and its relationship to industry in the north of England, I think, because I think most people very much have the sense that the miners were defeated in the 80s and almost that the industry was over and done with by the late 80s, that it didn't really exist anymore. But, but, but it was still a you know, major industry into the, into the early 90s, right? Yes, certainly. I mean, you know, I was, I, I was born in uh, 1984, a few weeks before the miner strike began, so I don't remember... You know, I don't have those kind of defining formative memories of watching news footage of, uh, you know, the Battle of Borgreave and, and so on and so forth. But I, but I do remember, I think, it was, was it kind of late 92, around about 19, 1992, 1993, there was a kind of second wave of mining closures. And I remember that very, very well, that being kind of on the news and that being a kind of big shock felt, certainly, in you know, in the northeast where I grew up. Also... In, in terms of the northeast, but 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 other areas throughout the north, shipbuilding industries were kind of wiped out under major uh, the, the kind of big northeast kind of epochal episode in that narrative was the Swan Hunter um, shipyards closing in I think uh, again kind of ninety three ninety four maybe so yeah you know the idea that you know majorism was a kind of you know acceptable sort of centrist version of Thatcherism is isn't tenable it was you know Thatcherism on on autopilot, as the as the cliche runs, which I think is is accurate. And you know, Major was at the head of this government, albeit you know, pro EU. But in terms of his economic policies, he was you know signing off on all of these kind of economic initiatives. On the question of of Labour's current position in the north of England and its relative decline. Mm-hmm. So, that, I mean, there's, there's very much a kind of, there's a tendency amongst the, especially the London-based media, to, to view the north of England as historically very monolithically Labour-supporting and, and overwhelmingly working class, which, you know, in the latter case allows figures like Jess Phillips to be treated as if they are, you know, the, the authentic voice of working-class England solely because she has a, a regional accent despite having, mm-hmm. a, you know, a fairly comfortable upbringing. How accurate is that depiction of the North as this historic bastion of the Labour supporting working class? Well, it's accurate with certain big caveats, obviously. So, you know, I, th- I think it wouldn't it wouldn't be too much of an ex- exaggeration to say that, you know, the Labour Party really has its has its roots in the North, not not exclusively by any means. It obviously has a big kind of 
history all over the country in in Scotland, in Wales, and in London in particular. Um, but lots of the big kind of seminal moments in the you know foundational phase of the Labour Party occurred in the north. So uh, you know the TUC was inaugurated in Manchester. Um, you know lots of the kind of local organisations uh, that amalgamated to form the ILP, the Independent Labour Party, were you know based in the north and so on and so forth. And you know it's throughout the twentieth century. You know the, the Labour Party, its its heartlands were were the north. You know I don't think that's a cliche. At the same time, clearly the North is quite a various um, geopolitical region. It has lots of rural seats, which are almost always Tory. Um, you know, one or two Lib Dem going back, you know, pre the Lib Dem collapse. It also, you know, it also there were kind of uh, local accents. So Liverpool, I think, for partly sectarian reasons, there was a, you know, there were kind of Tory seats even in working class districts of Liverpool. Yeah, I, I imagine that would be a surprise to some people, given you know Liverpool seems just this kind of fortress of the left these days, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, and again, there you know there are kind of chronological accents and and variations as well, so that you know the kind of Thatcher moment was a moment of polarisation, such that after nineteen seventy nine, it would have been you know unthinkable for anyone in Liverpool to vote for Thatcher. I mean, even even so, though, interestingly in in uh, the '83 election, Newcastle Central, which is you know predominantly working class area of central Newcastle, uh, you know it's not not really a mining district, but you know nevertheless is you know certainly mainly working class. That turned Tory for one electoral term. It's sort of dramatised in Our Friends in the North. This uh, you know Nikki, one of the main characters in Our Friends in the North, you know stands for Parliament and and loses it to the Tory MP. That was based on a a real narrative in Newcastle. So there are, you know, there are local accents, but I, you know, I, do, I don't think we should go so far as to be sceptical about the fact that, you know, the North was a kind of solid Labour heartland and still is to a large degree. You know, I think that's that's one thing to make clear about the article. I'm, you know, I don't think Labour has yet lost the North. And actually, I, you know, I think it, for it to completely lose the North and to, for the heartlands to be completely torn up and relinquished to you know, the Tories or the Brexit Party or whatever, that would be a pretty seismic change. Nevertheless, yeah, you know, I think, I think, I think, I think, you know, the North is a Labour heartland with certain caveats, I think I would, Hmm. um, that would be the kind of potted summary. Why do you think there is that seeming inability on behalf of the media to recognise those caveats? Because it always feels as if the media is, is just blind to the fact that there's always been a segment of the working class that has voted conservative and that this is not a new phenomenon that, you know, can just be attributed to, um, you know, the rise of, of, of UKIP and, and so on. Well, I mean, you know, I think the, the obvious point is that it, the media is almost entirely London based. Um, you know, it's almost as simple as that. Joe Kennedy, a friend of mine, a fellow repeater author, has spoken about this very eloquently in his book, Authentocrats. You know, there's the kind of London media is, is sort of free to say what it wants, pretty much. It's not, it doesn't, it's not challenged. It doesn't have, um, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't, there's no one there to introduce caveats. It can kind of say pretty much what it wants. So you have people uh, using the North as blank, you know, carte blanche for whichever argument they want to make, essentially. So you have, you know, kind of Guardian journalists. Um, it's not just the Guardian, but the Guardian perhaps most egregiously, you know, arguing that the North is a kind of racist hinterland that is kind of 
shifting to to the kind of far, you know ready to kind of throw in its lot with the far right at the nearest opportunity. So you know, I guess the the, the article was an attempt to sort of partly an attempt to to qualify that narrative, even though I, you know I do think that there is a risk of certainly Labour losing its grip on the North. I think you need to make that argument in a, in a much more subtle way than you know this notion that the North is a kind of world of grim, you know, derelict seaside towns turning to racism, kind of Sasha Baron Cohen's Grimsby, that kind of narrative. So, I mean, in, in terms of the uh, the nature of Labour's decline in the North, you argue in the article that this is in large part attributable to the erosion and disappearance of the community infrastructure that connected ordinary people to the party, whether that's uh, local union branches and, and social clubs and that sort of thing. I mean, do, do you think that's a problem that's peculiar to the north of England? Because reading the article, one thought I had was this raises the question of the difference between, say, the working class in the north of England and the working class in somewhere like London, where I get the sense that amongst Labour activists and, and people in momentum, there's a feeling that in spite of the atomization of life in London, it remains possible to appeal to a, a, a pretty broad working class base through a fairly straightforward retail offer when it comes to election pledges. I mean, if, if that is the case, and maybe it isn't the case, why can't Labour succeed in the North simply through presenting attractive policies? Well, it, that's a good question. I mean, you know, it's difficult for me to, you know, I lived in London for four years, so I have some sense of the London side of that narrative, but it's it's difficult for me to comment at length on, on London and what's happening there. I mean, I would sort of speculate that in London you have a, you know, a sense of proximity, you know, there's a tremendously well-built-up transport system, huge kind of intellectual population. It's, you know, the infrastructure is very strong in London, uh, there's a sense that you know that people can get from one side of the southeast to the other very quickly. You know, campaigning is much stronger. There are kind of multiple you know momentum groups in the in the, in the area. For example, uh, the northern side of that is is very different. You know, it's the momentum group in in Newcastle, for example, is very small. Even though there's obviously this huge kind of you know almost kind of abandoned uh, you know labour constituency in the northeast it just hasn't happened that uh, you know i know people that you know try and kind of do the traditional kind of campaigning activities you know kind of uh, try to get to places in the region that uh, that you know that have been abandoned and and you know that need to be won back to labor and to politics full stop but i you know i would speculate that you know it's 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 like everything else there's a question of kind of political infrastructure not not being there and even if in the southeast, you don't have the kind of traditional labour infrastructure. You still, uh, you know, there's a sense, still a sense of kind of civilization, um, you know, uh, functioning. Whereas it, in you know large swathes of the north, it you know there, there is you know there is no infrastructure. There's no the kind of social fabric is is just not there, which makes political campaigning very difficult. I, you know, again there are again you know local accents. To that narrative, though, you know, the Manchester momentum, for example, is very strong, perhaps, you know, it's the best, best, best of all, as far as I can make out. It's, the, you know, it's the kind of singularly good, vibrant, vital momentum, you know. So the, there are local accents, obviously, you know, that brings to the fore the question of different, different, again, different versions of the North. You have the kind of big cities, Manchester, obviously, being the, the, the biggest, uh, and then you have the kind of 
smaller cities, smaller towns, you know, I don't know, some, somewhere like Middlesbrough, which is very disconnected. You know, it's even Middlesbrough's in the northeast, but it takes an hour to get there on a the train from Newcastle, for example. So, yeah, you know, I, I, I would say it's possibly a question of infrastructure, as with so many other things that, you know, the kind of traditional working class infrastructure has disappeared and in the north it hasn't been replaced, whereas perhaps London still has a basic kind of civic infrastructure, you know, it's the kind of spending on transport is, is much higher, the population is growing, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So that perhaps is, is what's underlying that. And I mean, in, in terms of doing something about the absence of that kind of infrastructure that used to connect ordinary people with, with the Labour Party and, and with the left more broadly, Mm-hmm. What do you think potential solutions to are to that? Because from what you're saying, it doesn't sound like uh, just setting up local momentum groups is enough. That we need, you know, something more kind of in dialogue with the specific problems faced by the north of England. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't. I, I, as with so many other things, I don't. You know, I don't think the kind of uh, the British left can sort of get together and solve this by proliferation of you know momentum cabals. It's you know, it's it's something that has to follow, you know, the, the kind of industrial working class grew up, obviously, in the first place because of, you know, massive, you know, macrocosmic capitalist developments, you know, and in, in the kind of traditional Marxist narrative, you know, it, it's kind of in, the proletariat was enabled by the Industrial Revolution, obviously. Similarly, what's happened in the period of deindustrialization is obviously a reverse of that, such that, you know, you've had a kind of removal of the conditions for uh, you know, the proletariat to to organize itself and uh, so on and so forth. So I don't think kind of slightly fatalistically, I don't I don't think it's I don't think, you know, we on the left can do much in a kind of organizational sense. You know, I think people try very, very hard to, to do so. But, it, you know, it's you're not you're not going to kind of you can't just kind of bus people to, I don't know, to Sunderland or you know, Barrow and kind of that's not, you know, that's not going to kind of revive the fortunes of the left and the fortunes of the Labour Party. Um, you know, I think it, it will be a much kind of slower, more structural process with radical political reorganisation of the country and reinvestment in the post-industrial areas, regeneration and political empowerment will, will sort of follow from that. You know, the North was a tremendously, you know, the political culture of the North and of the British left more generally arose because... The North was, you know, like Silicon Valley or, or you know, Renaissance Florence in the 19th century. And over that, that the kind of long 19th century into the 20th century, that, you know, the Labour movement, the Labour Party evolved largely from that very strong economic and political base. And what we're seeing at the moment is the removal of that and the consequent disempowerment of the political culture of the of the region. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, I don't think there's that much we can, we can do. I think the changes have to be very deep and very structural. And so, I mean, in that earlier period, I mean, as, as you say, you know, comparing it to the Silicon Valley of today, during that period, it was obviously perceived by many people on, on the left that the high technological development of, of the region showed that this was the class that was the agent of history that was going to transform society and, and, and abolish capitalism. Clearly, that didn't happen. And so, so would you be saying that in order for it to be possible for working class communities in former industrial areas to be politically active again, to some extent, they are dependent on the 
the revival of the local economy through, say, a Corbyn government, for instance. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I think political radicalism has two main, uh, you know, the two main things that fuel it. One is hardship, obviously, if, you know, if you're kind of in a difficult position and you're pushed to a certain point, you're going to kind of get angry, you're going to rebel. Political radicalism comes very obviously from, from that. But it also comes from, you know, a degree of not quite affluence, but enablement by, you know, social and economic conditions. And, you know, I think that you, you see that very clearly in the North. You have the kind of hardship and the kind of anger that comes with the industrial experience. But you also, you know, over a period of a century have a degree of, you know, winning certain certain rights, you know, kind of better conditions, fewer working hours, better wages. And that is, you know, really where the Labour Party comes from. It does, you know, it doesn't come from, you know, uh, completely kind of, you know, the lump of proletariat, I guess, the, you know, the completely immiserated, uh, you know, kind of victims of industrialization. It, it comes from, a, you know, a combination of victimhood and empowerment. So, yeah, so, I, you know, I think the empowerment has to come, to come back to your question from, we have to have a degree of empowerment to go with the, with, with the kind of hardship, you know, that kind of, that is what will produce a kind of revivification of a radical culture and, and that empowerment, obviously, I think, and you think and many other people think, needs to come from a, a radical reformist, you know, Corbyn-led or some sort of analogous radical reformist Labour government. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.